Good to be with you again. Always happy to fill in. One of the joys of retirement. I'm glad to do it. Uh, this morning, our text comes from <clears throat> Galatians 4. If you want to either turn there or read along on the screen. One thing I forgot. Yes. There is coming kids this morning for those who are, uh, who are in need of that. For any kids in uh, uh, four years old through, uh, through first or second grade. So if you have uh, kids with you this morning, that would be helpful to have them participate. They're welcome. Nope. And the adults have to stay, right? <laughs> okay. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4 <clears throat> through verse 7. This is the word of God. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to us again this year. And we know for the year to come. And so we ask that we would Take your word to heart again this morning, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, another year is ending, and it was difficult in many ways, was it not? And a new one is upon us very soon, which seems to be full of more uncertainty. And I've heard people say, I just don't think I can take this anymore, much more of this. And so I thought it might be good uh, to step back a bit and look at the big picture today using uh, this text to be reminded that God's plan of redemption is right on schedule. And he is not in heaven wringing his hand saying, oh no, what am I going to do now? So let's look at our text using um, what I would call five main investigative questions. When, who, what, how, and why? Yes, the five-point sermon, sorry. <laughs> but when, on the first Christmas, who, God and his son, what, the incarnation, God among, among us, Emmanuel, how, to be a sacrifice for us, and why, so that we could be adopted and cry, Abba, Father. So, the first one is the coming of Christ was according to God's sovereign plan. That's when. It said the time had fully come, or when the fullness of time had come. That word is chronos, and you can hear chronology. So this is saying when the chronology was right. Now this does not mean that God, unlike us, we sometimes cleverly look at events and things that are out of our control because we didn't see it coming, and then we think hard and we work and put together a plan and we weigh factors and 
figure all the angles, trying to make the best of a bad situation. No, God has done this. It's far beyond that. This is God creating and controlling events of history. This is not God merely reading history that already happened and making a well-informed guess. Rather, it's God making history and saving sinners. So this phrase places the coming of Christ in a perfectly orchestrated and executed plan of redemption. Only a sovereign and eternal God could do such a thing. The coming of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection in the first century, the coming of Jesus is a divinely ordained event which takes place in a series of divinely ordained events. That's God's chronology. So think with me a bit about this chronology. Ephesians 1 tells us that God's plan for saving his chosen people goes back before the foundation of time. Ephesians 1, 4 says God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. That predates Genesis 1.1. He set a plan in motion way back then. I don't know about you, but eternity future is hard enough for me to grasp, but eternity past that God has always been and never had a beginning just blows my mind even more. So then, as Tracy read earlier in Genesis 3, Satan is successful in in tempting Eve, and Adam falls right in with her. And then immediately, God makes that amazing promise, I will put enmity, bitterness, strife, fighting, between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers, meaning Christ. And he, Christ, will crush your head, prefiguring the cross, and you will strike his heel, meaning as terrible as the cross was, after the resurrection, it will amount to no more than a bite on the heel. So that was the promise, Genesis 3, and that bitterness and enmity continued all through Bible history. There were numerous battles in Israel's history when Satan tried to wipe out the people of God so that the promised Messiah could not be produced. In 2 Kings 11, we find the account of an evil queen, queen named Athaliah, who nearly succeeded, she got that close, in having the whole royal family of Israel killed, which would cut off, would have cut off the seed line to Christ. But God wouldn't allow that. In the book of Esther, the evil magistrate Haman wanted Mordecai killed. You probably remember that in Esther 3.6. We read, this is Esther 3.6, and this is Haman, the tool of Satan, speaking, or speaking about. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he, Haman, scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Satan, again, trying to cut the seed line and break the chronology, 
that would eventually produce the baby Jesus who would grow up to be the savior of sinners. God sovereignly protected the nation and the people of Israel so that Christ could be born. He failed to cut the seed line, the baby was born, and even after Christ's birth, Satan used Herod to have all two-year-olds and under murdered, anything to keep Christ from getting to the cross. In Matthew 8, 29, it's a very interesting account to me, uh, we find two demon-possessed men saying to Christ, have you come to torment us before the time? What time? It would seem that in one sense, demons know more about this chronology than we do. There is a sovereign plan by which God is accomplishing redemption. Now, the demons in that account are confused about the exact time or their chronology, but they knew somehow the cross was coming, and they dreaded it, and they were upset that it might be sooner than they expected. They knew that some kind of ominous cosmic clock was ticking. And then in Matthew 4, Satan in the desert tries again by tempting Christ to somehow take a detour around the cross and go straight for his glory. He says, I'll give you all of this now if you'll just eat something, break your fast, do some miracle, anything but staying on track to the cross. And Jesus didn't need to stay on track for himself. He was already sinless and righteous. He stayed on track for us. As it says in our verse this morning, to redeem those under law. More on that in a moment. So the coming of Christ then occurs when it did because it was part of God's sovereign and eternal plan to put us right with God and accomplish our adoption as sons and daughters. So pause just for a moment and think on this. If you are a Christian, your life is in God's hands. There is a direct connection between what happens to you and me each and every moment of each and every day, direct connection to the sovereign plan of God. What are you going through right now? I don't know your details, but you might be experiencing some terrible pain, uh, either directly in your own life or indirectly as a result of another person's choices and actions, but we must answer a question to find our way out of this. How sovereign is God? Well, sort of silly to even ask it when you hear it that way, but the answer is he's completely 100% sovereign. But we've got to admit sometimes our inner thoughts and outer reactions to life answer differently. There can be a gap between our, our head theology and our heart theology. And maybe this morning, do you need to confess any rebellion you might have against that or any lack of faith? And do you need to reaffirm your trust in his sovereignty? Do that now if you need to. 
So our first point is that only God can determine the timing and only God can say when the time had fully come. And I think the remaining points flow naturally from that. The second point is it follows from the fact that Christ's coming was according to God's sovereign and eternal plan. It follows that it was accomplished at God's initiative. This is the who question. In the fullness of time, we now ask the question, who did this? God and his son. This is the triune God at work. This shouldn't be passed over too quickly, as obvious as it is, but if it was at God's initiative, at whose initiative was it not? Can you say it that way? You know what I'm saying. The text does not say, when the time had fully come, man roused himself from his spiritual slumber and sought after God. No, God sent his son to sinful man. God initiated what has been referred to as a preemptive strike of grace. We also read earlier uh, Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in no shape to take any spiritual initiative at all, God did. This is an important point these days because many people claim that the cross merely made salvation possible or just available, if you will just take it. But they would say it is up to man to decide to receive Christ. And yet we find many, many verses which say things like, I was conceived in sin. Uh, the unsaved man is a God hater. You are dead in your trespasses in sin which means spiritual corpses don't take any initiative. Others say, no man can come to me unless the Father draw or drag him. Another text says, the flesh profits nothing. But if unsaved natural man still in his sin is somehow able to choose Christ, then not only does the flesh profit something, it profits everything. Eternal life, in fact. No man is born a natural and willing enemy of God. This is called the doctrine of original sin, uh, related to what is, is what has been called total depravity or radical depravity. It means that we are so dead spiritually, like a corpse, that if God doesn't initiate something, we're still dead. So in the same sense that we can ask how sovereign is God, we can also ask, how dead is a corpse? So, the coming of Christ, as the Bible defines it, is completely God's doing. He is the who of the verse. And his doing comes from his loving. We see that connection in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. And he sent him for a reason, not to remain the sweet baby of Christmas, but for a terrible purpose. I wonder if you've read and understood Isaiah 53, 10, which says, it was the Lord's will. Other translation says, it pleased the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer and make him a guilt offering for you. 
and for me. That takes us to the third question, what? What did God do in the sending of his son? Well, the coming of Christ qualifies him as an acceptable human substitute sin bearer. This is a Christmas connection. He was born of a woman. Means he was born as a human. In God's economy, a human has to die for another human. The sacrificial system in Israel over a hundred years established the need for a sacrifice to pay for sin, but we now see it has to be Jesus. So you, you remember when God um, held Abraham's arm back from sacrificing his son Isaac, the promise was given that God will provide the lamb, <clears throat> referring to the coming Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God, a sacrificial animal, as it were. And it's essential that Christ had a human nature to be a fitting sacrifice for other humans. So the, the humanity of Christ is an essential part of Christian doctrine. And most of the Nicene Creed that we use to affirm our faith this morning is about Christ. If you could see the whole creed together, the first part is, uh, the first screen was uh, an introductory comment, and then that much of it is about Christ and who and what he came to do. And then there's a little bit more at the end. But it speaks volumes of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Quick illustration here from our time in Japan as missionaries. Um, an American missionary was preaching in Japanese about the incarnation of Christ. Very important doctrine. A lot of Japanese people know very little about doctrine and theology, and he really wanted to send this home about the humanity of Christ. Unfortunately, the words for carrot and human being are very close in Japanese. Carrot is ninjin, human is ningen. He got them mixed up. And he said, it was in Japanese, but here's what it was in, come across in English, to be orthodox, <laughs> to be doctrinally correct, you must affirm that Jesus was 100% God and 100% carrot. <laughs> fully God, fully carrot. His incarnation proves his carrot nature. <laughs> Christmas is all about being a carrot. If he is not 100% carrot, then you are still lost in your sins. So my friends, do you see why Jesus has a carrot nature? And on and on he went. He just about died when he found out later what he had said. <clears throat> it's a funny story, but you get the point. If Jesus didn't have a fully human nature, then we have no adequate substitute, and we are still lost in our sin. That's what he wanted to send home, and that is true. And the Nicene Creed carefully affirms that he was incarnate, made flesh. He was made man. So we affirm the virgin birth. Uh, there is both a big difference and a big similarity between us and Christ. The big difference was that he was born without sin. We weren't. 
but the big similarity is fully human, both of us. The fact that he is human qualifies him as a substitute sacrifice for other humans. When you see the baby in the manger, you know he's human. He grew up, as all humans do, dirty diapers, colds, fever, sunburn, cuts, bruises. I don't want to ruin what may be someone's favorite Christmas song, but Away in a Manger has a line that says, no crying he makes, the little Lord Jesus. Well, if he never cried, then you and I could have a big problem. He was a real human baby, and babies cry. So in this sense, you better be glad that he cried when he was hungry. And his job as an adult was that of a carpenter. If he got a splinter or banged his finger with a hammer, it hurt because he was a human. And some might say, well, that's an undignified or disrespectful way to think of Jesus, but it's really not. Uh, rather, it establishes his humanity and therefore his suitability as a candidate for sacrifice. He's an acceptable substitute sin-bearer, uniquely so. By the way, you don't have to have him as your sin-bearer. Uh, you could, of course, bear it yourself. In fact, all who reject Christ have made that very choice. They will bear their own sin debt. They will pay with, to be blunt, damnation, spiritual destruction, eternal suffering, gnashing of teeth, as the Bible says, wailing and torment, and separation from God forever. You can do that if you like. Or you can confess your sin and guilt and trust Christ, and he will become your sin bearer, as we heard and saw the promises up here earlier that John read and the Lodicos answered. They did it. This is a real question. What will it be? All sin will be judged one way or another. There must be an accounting for it. Will you handle that yourself, or will you have a mediator? The Bible also tells us it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You want to do that wrapped in the loving arms of Christ or all by yourself? He's a wonderful Savior, powerful to redeem, and his blood washes away sin. Receive him today if you never have. And if you already have, marvel and rejoice at the saving work of God that it is in effect for you right now. It, it's holding fast and it's working right now. The blood of Christ avails for you at this moment. Right now, it saves and keeps you from destruction. I think it's clear in our minds that when we came to Christ, we trusted the blood of Christ, and when we stand before God on Judgment Day, we're going to trust it, but we should have an ongoing appreciation for the present value of the blood of Christ in our lives. Fourthly, we move to the next part of the text, and we answer the question, how? And this was done, and, 
and God's answer is, he was born under the law. That's how I did it, God says. This qualifies him as an acceptable substitute provider of righteousness because he was born under the law. He willingly subjected himself to the law. This means everywhere the Bible says, thou shalt, he did. And everywhere it says, thou shalt not, he didn't. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, to fill it full of obedience. He came to keep it to the nth degree. Every implication, every nuance, things you and I never even thought of, because it reflects God's holiness. I read once that um, when R.C. Sproul would go uh, do guest preaching at a church, he would send his bulletin information in, and the title of the sermon that he sent was, Salvation is by Works. And he got a couple of phone calls before the, the service. Well, God's holiness and purity demand an absolutely perfect obedience to every single point of the law, and that's a lot of work. And you're saved by works, but it's someone else's works. Christ Jesus himself. The baby in the manger was provided so that he could grow up and live a perfect life of law-keeping in your place. He is a substitute provider of righteousness. He not only died for you, he lived for you perfectly under the holy law of God. Another silly question to ask, have you ever committed even one single sin? If you have, then you are disqualified as a provider of righteousness. You and I need a stand-in. You and I need a go-between. You and I need a substitute provider of righteousness. You and I need a savior. You and I need righteousness, and because we've already failed at providing our own righteousness, it's called filthy rags by the Bible, we need Jesus in his righteousness. So this means that the law now has no claim on him, Jesus, personally. It can't say a thing to him. It has no power over him because he obeyed it perfectly. And yet he makes himself subject to it for you and for me. If you're a Christian, you have this righteousness charged to your account, imputed to you, so that when you stand before the Father, Romans 8.1 will be true of you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, God did by sending his Son so that the law might be fulfilled in us. In Luther's comment on this verse, it's in your bulletin as our meditation today, he describes Christ as saying to us, the law killed you, and I do judge, condemn, and kill the law, and so I deliver you from its tyranny. The law killed you, but I killed the law for you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Lastly, our text 
tells us one more thing, and that's why all this was done. The coming of Christ provides the means for our adoption to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons. So the first point, when, tells us there is a sovereign and eternal plan. Second point, who, tells us it's purely at God's initiative. Third and fourth, we can kind of mix together the what and the how, tells us the legal, forensic, technical way he did it, and that's by sin paid for and righteousness added. And now fifthly, we see the reason for it all. Why? So that we might be adopted in the very family of God himself with all full rights. By God's plan and at his initiative, he forgives your sin and then makes you and gives you the righteousness that he requires. In other words, he makes you adoptable. Some have said God receives us just as we are. That's true, but he doesn't leave us that way. Because if he did, he couldn't adopt us. God, by his nature, cannot adopt sinners unless they are forgiven of their sin and covered with a perfect righteousness. And you are. You have been. So now you're adopted. And you get to go home with God. People who have experienced adoption humanly understand this more um, or parents who have adopted children. Uh, after all the work is done, after all the money is paid and all the things you do, you finally go pick them up and drive them home. And you pull into the driveway. Now, infants don't know it, but other older adopted children do. We knew some missionaries uh, in Japan who adopted a son around, he was six or eight years old, and I think it was, and he, they told us about driving in the driveway, and they said, here's your house. And he said, this isn't my house. Yes, it is, too. They go in, here's my room. Here's your room. My room? No, not my room. Yes, it is, too. And more and more, every day, the child believed it as the parents loved him and cared for him, and that's the way it is with us, too, with God. Christ came to redeem us who were under law that we might receive full rights of sons and daughters. Another friend told me of a trip uh, to Israel that he was on, and he was able to go into a typical Israeli home <clears throat> where the dad spoke some English. And as they were talking in the living room, they heard a thump and a crash on the steps nearby, and the five-year-old son came hobbling in, limping, holding his knee, and ran to his dad saying, Abba, Abba, Abba. And he heard it then, and he said, that's it. It was all in Hebrew with the dad saying, oh, oh, oh let me see it, son. Um, it's okay, son. Here, let me kiss it. That's the privilege we now have as adopted sons and daughters with God himself. We can go to him with anything at any time because when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman and born under law. Just one last thought as we close. Um, let me ask you, do you, do I, maybe speaking more for me, have, after all of this, an orphan mindset? 
even though it's all been provided for you, even though you have the full run of the palace, the full acceptance of God the Father, even though all of that is yours, do you still find yourself trying, not perfect, maybe not purposefully and um, not, but making excuses about yourself and trying to justify everything you say and do, do you still find yourself trying to provide, as it were, your own righteousness, trying to earn favor with God, trying to somehow atone for your own sin? Like me, often misinterpreting the Holy Spirit's fire of conviction, thinking God is mad at you and punishing you where really he's refining you. Orphans always misinterpret the fire of God. I wonder, have you strayed outside into the cold, icy rain? We'll come back in to the warm den and sit with your father by the fire. Your elder brother, Christ, earned that position for you. So enjoy your new birthright. And if you've never experienced this, if you really haven't had any idea what I've been talking about, but now you do, today is the day of your salvation. Confess your sin and receive Christ as both your forgiveness and your righteousness and become a child of the King. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that if there are any here today for whom this is new news, would you make it good news to them? Would you make the Christmas grace connection for them? Would you cause the blinders to fall from their eyes and take their breath away and let them see Christ and see why he came? And for us who already know him, I ask that by your spirit you would deepen and enrich our love for Christ and the gospel and make us ever more thankful. And may it not stop there, but work out into our lives. May we see more and more that because of Christ and what he has done for us that we truly have our real needs met and we have unlimited resources to love and care for others in ways we never imagined. And because of your grace, we can absorb just about anything. And so we ask this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hark the herald angels sing. King